Today, if you have, uh, could guess it, we're going to be talking about the heart. Uh, because we're in a sermon series where we're trying to remind ourselves about the glory of the gospel. And one of the most exciting parts of the gospel, so far as I'm concerned, is this idea that God gives us a new heart. Because what we're going to see today is we go far beyond being made right with God positionally. He makes us right with God in our very hearts, in our very being, in the very essence of who we are. So today's preaching text is a short one, but a powerful one. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. And our primary text is one verse. Verse 17. As you're looking for your place, would you please stand? Romans chapter 6, verse 17. I think it's worthwhile to give you just very brief context. In chapter 6, Paul has begun to ask the question, should we just sin more that grace may abound more? He says, no, why not? Because we've been crucified with Jesus, which means we have died with Jesus and been born again in Jesus. And he's going on to say that really, what does it mean to be born again? It means that your dead heart has been crucified and killed, annihilated, eradicated, removed, and in place of your dead, totally depraved heart, you have been given a new heart, you're a new creature, and you can now live for Christ. And so chapter six says, therefore, live that way. Live from the heart. Submit your bodies, submit your members, submit your lives to righteousness and no longer to unrighteousness. Why? Because you can. And that's what this verse is all about. This is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 17. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. This is the Word of God. We were slaves of sin, unable to do anything good, but through Jesus Christ and the Gospel, we have been made obedient from the heart. Our task today is to ask the question, what does Paul mean? And this is the glory of the Gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful to be able to stand here to preach this message to a church I love, to brothers and sisters that I love. I thank you that you have given us a new heart. And I pray that you would help us to live from that new heart, no longer indulging the desires of the flesh, but doing the very thing that we desire at our deepest selves. I pray for anyone here who has not yet received the new heart, I pray especially for those who might call themselves a Christian, but they've never been born again. They are still slaves of sin. They do not have a new beating heart that lives for Christ. They have not been made obedient from the heart. Lord, I pray today that the preaching of your word would cut to the heart, that if there's anyone here that needs to be saved, that you would do it today. For the rest of us, Lord, I pray that you would refresh us in this glorious doctrine, and that you would Help us to live from our new hearts because we have been made obedient from the heart. Help me to preach. Help us to receive your preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. 
Amen. Please be seated. The video that I showed is, is really important and it saves us a lot of time because that's, that's done by the Bible Project and they've defined for us what the heart is. We have messed up a biblical understanding of the heart in our culture. Uh, how many of you have ever heard that, well, uh, the distinction between the, the head and the heart, the brain and the heart, right? We all know that. We, we, we make that distinction. That's not a biblical distinction. That's a platonic distinction. That's Greek philosophy, not biblical theology, to separate the head and the heart. And we do it, and there's, there's a, a level on which we, we experience life that way, and I don't know why we experience life that way. If, if we would experience life that way if we hadn't been taught to separate the head from the heart. Uh, without getting into it, our brain controls our bodies. We know that. That's the control center for our for our bodies. But our brain, like our hands and our arms and our feet and our legs and every other part of our bodies is a member of the body. And although we do process thoughts through the brain, the genesis of our thoughts is our hearts. It's, it's from the center of your soul that your mind exists. And your mind exercises itself through your brain, producing thoughts in the brain, absolutely. But, but, but this distinction from head and heart needs to be broken down because that's not the biblical revelation. Your, your thoughts come first and foremost from the fountain of your soul, which is your heart. And they filter through your brain, and from your brain you control your body. So the heart, biblically speaking, is your inner person. It's a phrase that can be interchanged with what we would call the soul. The immaterial part of who you are. The center of your soul is your heart. And from your heart, your person is governed. Your intellect, your thoughts, the way you think, your emotion, how you feel, and your desires, and your volition, the choices that you make. That all comes from your soul and is filtered through your brain and is exercised by your body. So what is the condition of the human heart? This is so important also for an understanding of the gospel. When Adam and Eve sinned, they corrupted every part of the human person, including the heart. So the control center of your person, the center of your soul, your heart is totally depraved. Total depravity does not mean that you exercise the extent of the wickedness that is potential for you, but it means that every part of you has been corrupted by sin. Therefore, we could say that you are dead in your trespasses and sin. Your heart is dead. Your heart is corrupted. Your heart is sinful. Your heart is incapable of loving God, thinking pure thoughts, and willing God's will. Even if, by God's common grace, totally depraved people do not always exercise the full extent of their wickedness. So is there any hope for the human heart? And if for the human heart, for the human person? Yes, there is. And that's the gospel. That, that, that's, that's the glory of the gospel. It's through the gospel that we celebrate that God has crucified our old self including and primarily our old heart, 
our sinful heart, the sin nature that dwells most deeply in our hearts, that has been crucified and annihilated, and in place of our old selves, we've been raised to new life. It starts with the heart. It'll be finished when our bodies are raised from the dead. We're in this two-phase resurrection. We've been made new from the heart, and now, but we're still trapped in the flesh. When we die, when Christ comes, He will raise our bodies, and then we will be finally and ultimately be made new. There will be no resistance to God at all whatsoever. Now, I have preached continuously or very frequently from this pulpit about the new heart. If we're in Christ, we've been born again. We get a new nature. If a new nature, that new nature comes from the fountain of yourself, which is your heart. And this is the part I really have stressed. I want to stress it again this morning, which means we have holy hearts. You're holy. Not just positionally, not as if God just says, well, I won't count that, that wicked nature against that person. You've been made holy in your nature. You have a holy heart. And that's what brings us, the, the, the best place to go in the New Testament to affirm this is here, but also all of Romans 6 and 7, but the way Paul says it is you've been made obedient from the heart. God has conformed your heart to the fullness of his holiness. That's awesome. So when we sin, we do not sin from the heart if you're in Christ. We sin from the flesh. Just give you three passages in Romans 7 to prove this point. Take a look at verse 17. Chapter 7, verse 17. If we neglect what I have just said already in today's sermon, this verse makes no sense. Romans 7, 17. So now, it is no longer I who do it, that is, I who sin but sin that dwells within me. That verse makes no sense. What Paul is not saying is that he is not responsible for his sin. What Paul is saying is he's making a distinction between the core of who he is and the exterior of who he is. But He's making a distinction between his inner man and his outer man. A distinction between his soul or his heart and his flesh. He says, I am not sinning from the heart context would tell us that that's what he means. Uh, it, it is the sin that dwells within me. Where in me? In my flesh. Am I responsible for that? Yes, I'm responsible for my flesh. But it's not the real me. It's not the true me. It's not the inner me. It's not my holy heart. He says the same thing again. And so he must want us to get the point. Go down to verse 20. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So here you see the, the desire, the volition of his heart is that he doesn't want to sin. Why? Because he's been made obedient or holy from the heart. That's not my true desire. Uh, and if I don't desire the sin, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Again, Paul is not saying that he's not responsible, but it's, he's trying to make a, a, a class distinction about the, the origin of his sinful behavior. It's not from the heart. It's from his flesh. 
So then we go down to verse 25, uh, and he says, I I hate living this way. I, I hate that my flesh is opposed to my heart. Is there any hope for me? Will I be delivered? And he says in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, because one day he will be raised physically from the dead, and there will be no more war between his heart and his flesh. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, which is a synonym for heart, the inner man, the central part of your person, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So that's some really crucial groundwork that we have to make if we're going to talk about the glory of the gospel and the promise and the reality of the new heart. Stephen Lawson has written a book, it's published in 2020, brand new book, there's not a lot of books about this. Why? Because we focus so much on our positional righteousness that that the Reformed Evangelical Church is now just catching up to these other really amazing doctrines that are as old as the Bible itself. But Stephen Lawson wrote a book called New Life in Christ, 2020. And in page 116, he says this, In every true believer, the Lord has given a new heart. It is one heart, meaning it is an undivided heart. It possesses one passion for God. This new heart does not have a divided loyalty. It does not split its allegiance between God and anyone or anything else. I'm I'm trying to really make this point so that when you sin, you know where your sin is coming from. And, And to stop thinking as though we have a war raging within our hearts. We don't. We have a war raging between the heart and the flesh, but that's not a fair fight because the real you is your heart. Uh, So you're already victorious in this fight, which is why in chapter 6 of Romans, Paul says, live that way. Live the victorious life. Anyone here struggling with a habitual sin? Because, perhaps, in part, we have not stopped to recognize that deep down you don't want to do that sin. You don't love that sin. You hate it when you do that. And so Romans 16 says, live from your heart. Engage, take control of yourself from the the, the most true part of yourself. See, the battle against sin is not trying to restrain something that we really truly desire. The battle against sin is to do the thing that you really want to do. No longer trying to stop yourself from desires that you you think are core to who you are. Now this is also really important. If you truly, truly desire it, the deepest part of your person desire that sin, you're not saved. Because it means you don't have a new heart. It means that your deepest desire is, is in rebellion to God and therefore you cannot be in Christ. We're going to go, and there's two parts now to the sermon. Uh, I want to eventually get to defining what is this new heart in greater detail. And we're going to go to the Old Testament to do that. But before we go there, I want to answer the question why. Because as I've preached this here over the last four years, I constantly get the question from a variety of people when I go outside of this church as well. uh, People say, well, what's the, why does it matter? Why, why does it matter if I say that, you know, I need a, a you know, create in me a clean heart, oh God, that we should just pray that along with David? Why can't we pray that prayer? 
Why does it matter? What, what, what is the, the benefit of making such a big deal of the new heart, the holy heart? So I want to answer that question. Why does this matter? And I have six reasons. And after we answer why it matters, then I want to define more clearly what are the aspects of the new heart that we can hold on to and say, that's true of me because I am in Christ. So number one, why does it matter? The first reason that this matters is that the doctrine of the new heart informs our view of the gospel. We want to be gospel people, right? We want to know the gospel so that we can live the gospel, so that we can proclaim the gospel. But if we don't know that we have a new heart, we don't actually even know the gospel. At least not all of it. Our, our gospel is insufficient. Our gospel is too small. Our gospel is not robust enough. It's crucial if we're going to go out and be uh, proclaimers of the gospel that we know what it is. You see, the gospel is more than justification. The gospel is greater than being made right with God positionally in a legal sense. That's what Romans 4 and 5 is all about. Justification is a glorious part of the gospel. And it's not about are you a justification gospel Christian or are you a new heart gospel Christian. We're, we're both. Justification, just by way of review, is the legal declaration by God from His throne in heaven that He declares you to be without sin, without guilt, legally. But nothing changes in your nature. That's a positional declaration. It's a legal declaration by God. God says, I have punished Jesus on the cross. Therefore, when I look at you, I see the righteousness of Jesus in your place and I saw your wickedness and your legal sinfulness, your guilt in Jesus when I punished him. And God, because he's just, is not going to punish your sin twice. He either punishes your sin on the cross or he punishes it in you, but he doesn't do it twice. That's justification. But the gospel is that, but more than that, the gospel is justification and sanctification. Now, sanctification does mean this growing in Christ-likeness as we submit our members more to our new heart. We, our new heart takes greater control of our lives experientially. But when I say the gospel is justification and sanctification, what I mean by sanctification is definitive sanctification. To put different words to it, it's that the gospel includes the, the reality that we've been born again. Sanctification is the death of the old self and the birth of the new self. And then that progressive part of sanctification is like growing up. We know that when you're conceived in, in, in the womb, you're a fully-fledged human being, even though you're just a handful of cells. You have to grow up into your humanity. Likewise, when you're sanctified, you're born again. You have a new holy heart, but experientially you need to grow up. So it's both parts of that. We cannot be sanctified in a progressive sense unless you have the fresh start, the death of the old self, the birth of the new self. If you do not have a holy heart in your very nature, you cannot be progressively sanctified. It's impossible. You have no resources to grow up in Christ unless you have a fresh beginning in your nature. So the new heart informs our view of the gospel. The gospel is 
positional righteousness, a declaration of righteousness, and natural righteousness. This is the amazing thing. Jesus, uh, through the Holy Spirit and the Father, but through the Holy Spirit, takes the imperishable seed of the gospel and implants it in your heart and makes you a new creature. And the holiness, which is natural to God, becomes natural to you. That's a good gospel. That's the first reason this really matters. Second reason, and these are all related, the new heart rescues us from a fear of grace. You may say, what do you mean a fear of grace? It's it's rampant in the church, a fear of grace. When somebody stands up in the pulpit and says, there is nothing you can do to be loved by God any more than you are loved right now. There is no action that you need to take to be more right with God than you are right now. In fact, if you go out and sin and you're in Christ, you are still loved maximally by God through Christ and you are still perfectly righteous in the, in the courtroom of heaven. And well-meaning Christians start to get agitated when that kind of preaching happens. Why? Are you saying, preacher, that we can go out and sin, 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 sin. Just sin as much as we want and then just claim the grace of God? Are you saying that you are giving me permission to sin, that nothing can touch me, that I am invincible in the hands of God's grace? Are you saying that grace is so complete that there is no sin, no matter how frequent, no matter how recent, and no matter how grievous that I commit that could separate me from the love of God? I don't know that I can go there with you. Because that's just a little too licentious. Licentious. It's a word that means license. You are giving me license to sin. That's what Paul's trying to answer in in Romans 6 and 7. He says, if if that's your take on on the glory of grace, you're not saved. You don't understand grace. And, And this is where the new heart helps. If the gospel was only justification, then everything I just said is true. Go out and sin more that grace may abound more. Because it's merely a legal declaration from the throne room of heaven and therefore go out and sin and the more you sin, the more grace will be required and the more grace that God gives you, the more glory to God. Justification, legal declaration of righteousness. But that's not all of the gospel. And so the new heart rescues us from a fear of grace and you can actually go out and say these amazing things about God's grace. Why? Because the gospel includes a death of the old self and a birth of the new self, so that if you're in Christ, you don't want to sin. You don't need to restrain yourself the way you used to. And now, gospel preaching says, become more the true you in the way you live your life. Positionally, it's taken care of. Let's stop trying to top up the righteousness that we get by the finished work of Christ. That's taken care of. Righteous, once righteous, always righteous, fully righteous. But now, the new heart says, we need to grow into the holiness that is true of us at our core. Be more yourself. Therefore, the new heart safeguards the gospel from sinful living. No gospel preacher says, go out and sin more. 
But every gospel preacher ought to say, it doesn't matter how much you sin, the grace of God can cover you. That's why you need the doctrine of the new heart. Third reason the doctrine of the new heart is important is because it defines our identity. If we do not know that we have a new heart, we will self-identify primarily as sinners. Have you ever been in that position? I am a sinner saved by grace. That sounds super spiritual, but it's not the gospel. At least not, depends how you mean it. If that's your primary identity, I am a sinner saved by grace. What are you doing? That is true, as a true statement, only within the realm of justification. So if that's your primary identity, you have an incomplete gospel, an insufficient gospel, and, and your primary core identity is that of sinner. But your core identity is no longer that you're a sinner. You are not a wretched sinner if you're in Christ. Show me one place when Paul or any other New Testament writer is writing to Christians and he calls them sinners. No, what does he call them? He calls them saints. To the saints that are at Ephesus. To the saints at Philippi. To the saints at Colossae. To the saints. And what is the word saint? Hagios. Hagios means holy one. To the holy ones. You used to be sinners. You used to be wretched. You used to be vile. But you are no longer wretched sinners. You are holy ones. Now, are we denying that Christians sin? Are we preaching perfectionism? No, no, we're not. Obviously we sin. We all know that we sin. And obviously, uh, we, we recognize that we need God's grace. We need to take mastery over ourselves. However, our primary identity cannot be sinner. It is no longer I who sin, but sin that dwells within me. That's what Paul's saying. My, my core identity, my, my, the deepest understanding of myself in Christ is not that of sinner. It cannot be me who sinned. Because I've been made obedient from the heart. If we know that we have a new heart, then we will self-identify primarily as saints. And what you think about yourself really matters. It matters on a therapeutic sense. I, I, I think we throw that away too quickly sometimes from the pulpit, and I've, I've been guilty of that. But it really matters how you feel about yourself. If you feel that you're a wretched sinner, that's just going to drag you down, and, and it's going to give you a life of drudgery, and God doesn't want that for us. But if, on the other hand, you self-identify as a holy one, as a saint, that changes everything about your conception of yourself. And I believe that this is the first step toward battling anxiety and depression and all kinds of mental health disorders. Now, I'm not denying the physical side of those things. I'm just saying the core of who we are is not our brain and it's not our brain chemistry. The core of who we are is our heart, which is an immaterial part of who we are. And there, at that part of who you are, there is no imbalanced brain chemistry. All you have is holiness. And I believe if we could live from that place, we would all be much, 
better equipped to live our lives. Not that we're not going to struggle. Not that we can't use additional help. But it's really crucial that we think correctly about ourselves. And fourthly, the fourth reason the doctrine of the new heart is really important, and this is directly related, the new heart impacts our behavior. If we think that at our core we are wretched sinners, then we will act like wretched sinners. This is where your identity is manifested in your behavior. That's what Romans 6 is all about. I want you to know what is true of you so that you can take control of your members. Do not be a slave to sin like you once were. You are now a slave of righteousness. Therefore, act that way. But if we think that at our core, from the heart, we are sinners, then we will act like sinners. If, on the other hand, we know that at our core we are holy, then we will begin to act holy. And we will be transformed from one degree of glory to another. Fifthly, the new heart changes our evangelism. Social media and all kinds of communications platforms are doing the church very little favor in this day and age. And I think it's directly related to this new heart doctrine. When I see Christians interacting with the unsaved world, we have forgotten that we have a new heart and the people who are unsaved out there in the world sinning do not have a new heart. So why do we expect them to behave as if they have a new heart? Why do we act so mean and angry and loud at people who don't have a new heart? I think it's because we have forgotten this doctrine. Unsaved people have dead, totally depraved hearts. So no, they're not, going to, they're not going to act like Christians when we're at our best. They might act like Christians when we're at our worst. And they're not. They're not going to be able to fulfill the demands of Scripture. And they're not going to have a worldview that conforms to the Bible. It's impossible for them. They're dead in their trespasses and sin. And so, just from a, from a pragmatic point of view, what is the point of going out there and demanding them to act totally contrary to their nature? You might as well take a fish out of water, put it in a tree, and tell that fish to fly. Knowing this doctrine should increase our compassion. We're dealing with dead people. We, we could have a little compassion. We are to go out there to be ministers of reconciliation, to give them the good news that it's possible to have a new heart. There's rescue for you. Yeah, uh, this doctrine should alter our expectations should change our social media posts and our protesting and our political engagement. It should compel us to pray for the transformation of hearts. And here's the thing, the Old Testament, as if, if the Old Testament 
does nothing else for you, it has proven that you cannot legislate this. You cannot legislate good behavior. You cannot legislate the new heart. Try as you might want to. Finally, the new heart directs our discipleship. Discipleship is impossible without the new heart. Apart from me, says Jesus in John 15, you can do nothing. Trying to disciple unsaved people is impossible. So trying to disciple churchgoers, if they don't have a new heart, is futile. That's why Paul often asks, have I, have I run in vain? Have I worked in vain? Do you have the new heart or not, Corinthians? Do you have the new heart or not, Galatians? Because if you don't, everything I did was wasted on you. It was for nothing. Because if you don't have a new heart, you can't do anything that I have instructed you to do. Therefore, rather than imposing Christian rules and Christian information as the means of discipleship, we must first look for evidence of a new heart in one another. That's, that's step one of discipleship, is, is trying to help people to find the new heart that is living and beating in them. And if you can't find it, then, then your discipleship is evangelism. You need to help people to, to, to recognize that they need to be born again. And then once you find evidence of a new heart, you feed that new heart. That's discipleship. You feed the new heart. And the new heart says, yes, I want more of that. More. Amen and amen and bring it on and more. So if, if, you're, if you're someone who's saying, I've had enough of church, thank you very much. I've had enough of the Bible, thank you very much. I've had enough of prayer, thank you very much. Not another Bible study. Not another sermon. You might not have a new heart because you have no appetite for discipleship. And that is perhaps evidence of no new heart at all. This, just by way of application, impacts how we train up our children. If your child is not saved yet, and all of our children start off as unsaved, wretched sinners who are totally depraved in their hearts, uh, you want to instruct them with a little law, right? Actually, you do. But there comes a point where law, they will buckle under the weight of the law. And then you just have to sort of let it go and, and pray and work toward the new heart. Preach, teach, show, model, shower, grace. And pray that that grace will take root and the heart will be transformed and then the instruction is feeding a new heart rather than laying a burden on a dead heart. That's why I think this is important. Can you have a gospel without this? So finally, I want to leave us in the last 10 minutes with a rock-solid, clear teaching on the new heart. And this actually goes quite quickly because uh, these are metaphors given to us in the Old Testament that I want us to look at. What is this new heart? If we know that it's important and it's crucial to the gospel, what is it exactly? The Old Testament describes the new heart in four ways. 
And, and what I want you to see as we go through these is the Old Testament, the Old Covenant anticipates, does not promise the new, the new heart. The new heart is part and parcel of the New Covenant. Now I'll admit, just right now, so I don't have to keep saying this over and over again, I'm not sure about people who are saved in Old Testament times. I am sure that they are saved by the cross of Christ, so I am sure that it's the new covenant reaching back to save them. I am sure of that. What their, the, their heart condition was, I'm not sure. But what I am sure is that the Old Covenant itself, the Old Covenant cannot deliver a new heart, but the Old Covenant anticipates and teaches us the need for a new heart. So number one, we go all the way back to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. The context here is that Israel, uh, Moses is about to die. He's given the wilderness generation. He reread the law for them. He reestablished the covenant for them. He said, this is the old covenant. If you do it, you'll be blessed. If you don't do it, you'll be cursed. And then chapter 30 says, you're, or chapter 29 and 30 says, you're going to fail. You are, you're, there is 0% chance of success that you're going to be able to keep this covenant. Therefore, all of the curses of Deuteronomy 28 are sure to come to you. Talk about, like, not the feel-good sermon of the year. Total failure guaranteed. That's Deuteronomy 29 and 30. But then, there is the promise of a new covenant. And we see it in chapter 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will, this is looking forward to the new covenant, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Earlier in Deuteronomy, Moses said the, the only hope you have of keeping covenant is if you circumcise your heart. Chapter 29 and 30, you, you will not be able to circumcise your heart. Total failure guaranteed. After that, a promise. But after your total failure and all of the curses, then God will not abandon you. He will, he will circumcise your heart. You're passive in that. Now, kind of a gross metaphor, right? But really, really graphically helpful. What is circumcision? It's the cutting off of flesh and throwing it away. Therefore, what is a circumcision of the heart? It's when God, by the Holy Spirit, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, cuts the sin out of your heart and nails it to the cross so that when the wrath of God falls against Jesus Christ, it is also falling against your dead, sinful heart. I don't know how it works, but the imagery, the, I think it's more than a metaphor, but the imagery here says God will cut the sin out of you, put it in Jesus, and crucify it so it's very graphic, but it's very helpful. So if you think of your heart, the heart is the center of yourself, just picture for a minute God cutting the sin nature out of you. 
and putting it on the cross. That's a helpful image, isn't it? For understanding what this is. What's left then? What's left is a holy heart. Secondly, the new heart is a clean heart. In Psalm 51, verse 10, now the the context for this is David has just committed rape against Bathsheba and murdered her husband. Just two gruesome sins. And so, in response, David prays this in Psalm 51, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Now, if the Old Covenant could handle intentional sin, David would have offered the sacrifice. But in verse 16, he says, You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. If there was a sacrifice under the Old Covenant system that could cover my intentional sin of rape and murder, I would offer that sacrifice. There is no sacrifice for that. You're not going to be pleased with a burnt offering, David says in verse 16. And a burnt offering is a a whole offering. It's the the granddaddy of all the offerings. Even that is not enough. David here is asking for more than justification. He's not just asking for a positional righteousness, although that comes in verse 9. Take a look at verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. That's justification. Declare me to be righteous. Do not count these sins against me in a legal sense. But he goes on. He says, that's not enough. I want more. I want a clean heart. That's that's what the new heart is. It's a clean heart. Which means that what David is asking for, what the new covenant promises, what Jesus achieves, is that the stain of total depravity in the heart is purified. How? Purification in the old covenant required water and blood. And it's the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses our hearts removing even the stain of sin. So after your sin nature is cut out, what's remaining of your heart is washed clean in the blood of Jesus. Think of a blood transfusion, the holiness that courses through Jesus' veins in his blood, coming from his holy heart, washes and is transfused to you so that his blood of holiness becomes your blood of holiness in a spiritual sense. That's a helpful image. Third, the new heart is a law-abiding heart. And we looked at this last week in Jeremiah. Uh, Again, uh, the context is that Jeremiah, much like Moses, is now prophesying the end. Uh, God's patience with his people has come to an end. Therefore, exactly the thing that Moses predicted and prophesied is coming to pass. God is bringing all of the curses against Judah and Israel and Jerusalem. So Babylon is going to come in and destroy them all. They're all going to be killed or carried into exile. But in the middle of this, God says, I'm not done with you. Under the the terms of the Old Covenant, God would have been right to be finished with his people. But he says, no, I'm not done with you. 
And in Jeremiah 31, 33, having promised a new covenant, he says, this is what the new covenant is. This is the covenant that I'm going to make with you, with the house of Israel. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. They will be my, their, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So what does it mean when God writes the law on our hearts under the new covenant? Well, we saw that's Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes down and dwells in us. And no longer are God's demands external. We've been made obedient from the heart. This seems to be the part that, that, that Paul just loved more than any of the other images. Uh, the law is written on our hearts. We've been made obedient. We've been made law keepers instead of law breakers from the heart we now understand desire and will the law of god from our hearts finally the the new heart is a living heart for that we go to ezekiel chapter 36 verses 25 through 27 and this the the context is very similar Uh, there's a remnant of jews sitting in babylon they are in exile And the prophet comes to them and says, this is not the end for you. This could have been the end for you, but because God is gracious, there's a new covenant to come. And this is how Ezekiel uh, describes the new covenant. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So if you think of it this way, it's a heart transplant. What does it mean that, that he will, God will give us a living heart? The heart that we have when we're born into this world is as if we have a stone at the center of our soul that cannot beat And in place of that stone, that rock, God gives us a beating heart. And because we have that beating heart, we are empowered from the inside out to live for God. We've been made alive. So when Paul says in Romans 6.17 that we've been made obedient from the heart, he's saying, in keeping with these promises, that our hearts have been circumcised, our hearts have been cleansed, our hearts have been written on, and our hearts have been made alive. Now, now notice that we can take these four things and divide them into two groups. The first two, the things that God removes from our hearts, and the last two, the things that God adds to our hearts. So what does he remove? Well, by circumcision, he removes our sin nature. It's gone from your heart. There's a residual sin nature in your flesh, but not in your heart. He he removes the stain of sin by cleansing us. What does he add? That's what he removes. That would be sufficient, you'd think. But then he adds, he actually writes the law on our hearts. So that the law of God is present at the core of who you are. That's what you really want for yourself and for others. And then he makes your heart alive. He gives you a spiritual pulse. Pulse. We were dead in trespasses and sin. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved you, has made you alive with Christ and seated you in the heavenly 
places. When we put all of this together then, the gospel that we proclaim is a gospel that promises the new heart anticipated by the Old Testament Scriptures. And this new heart is holy. A circumcised, cleansed, written on, made alive heart is a holy heart. It is holy in nature. Therefore, you are holy in nature. And this all matters very much. It deeply matters. If you don't have this as part of your gospel, you have an insufficient gospel and you will live a defeated life even while you call yourself a Christian. Now you may not understand this and truly be saved, but it's our responsibility to understand what is true of us so that we can work out this salvation with fear and trembling. It's the new heart that informs our view of the gospel. This is what the gospel is. It's a new heart that rescues us from a fear of grace. Go out and preach grace boldly and follow it up with the new heart. Uh, it's the new heart that defines our identity. We are saints, not sinners. It is the new heart that impacts our behavior. It is the new heart that changes the tone and tenor of our evangelism. And it's the new heart that directs our discipleship. The glory of the gospel includes the promise of this new heart. Do not settle. I plead with you. Do not settle for a gospel that tells you that you are positionally righteous but naturally wicked. It's not the gospel. You're a saint. You're holy. You've been made holy by the effective grace and the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now it's our task to number one, live this out, and number two, proclaim it. Because this is very good news. The world is looking for hope. You're not going to find it in a prime minister or a president or an economic system or a philosophical worldview you find it in the new heart and the glory of the gospel. So let's go out with this promise, this, this note of hope, and be ministers of reconciliation to a dead and dying and desperate world. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us. Help us to know deep down who we are and then help us to live out of that place. Uh, help us to win the battle against our flesh so that we could have something to preach and something to proclaim, something to invite people to. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who calls himself a Christian but they actually don't have a new heart, I pray today, right now, in this moment, perhaps while we're singing or even now while I'm praying, that you would crucify their old heart circumcise their heart, cleanse their heart, write your law on their heart, and give them a living heart. Because this is the gospel. Oh, what a glory it is. Praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.